Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. Look, the role of the Congress and the role of the vice president on that day is to open and count electoral votes. No more, no less. And I'll always believe, by God's grace, that I did my duty that day. But there was more to it than that. There's new reporting that Mike Pence seriously considered shirking that solemn duty and skipping the January 6th electoral vote certification. Also tonight, Russia extends the detention of American journalist Evan Gershkovich and is seeking to prosecute another journalist, Masha Gessen of The New Yorker, who joins me tonight. Plus, honoring the life of former First Lady Rosalind Carter, a tribute service is attended by all the living, li- the living First Ladies and three presidents, including her beloved husband, of 77 years, former President Jimmy Carter. But we begin tonight with new reporting about January 6th that may help explain a lingering mystery in the lead up to that day. Just one day before then Vice President Mike Pence was to preside over the Electoral College vote count, the president pro tempore of the Senate, Republican Chuck Grassley, set off quite the controversy when he indicated that he might in fact preside over the count after being asked by reporters how he was going to vote on the election certification. Quote, well, first of all, I will be, if the vice president isn't there and we don't expect him to be there, I will be presiding over the Senate. Grassley's office was quick to claim that the senator's comment was being mischaracterized, that he only meant that he would preside over the debate in the Senate if Pence had to step, Mike Pence had to step out, not preside over the certification in the joint session. Given the mounting pressure Pence was facing from Trump and the rest of the MAGA world to buck the Constitution in order to keep his boss in office, it would not be out of the realm of possibility for Pence to step aside that day. But he ultimately presided on January 6th, even as Donald Trump was simultaneously inciting the violent MAGA mob that was fighting to get into the Capitol the same mob that was chanting this about Trump's vice president. But it turns out Pence did have second thoughts about showing up that day. ABC News is reporting new details of what Pence told special counsel Jack Smith's team earlier this year including about one of Pence's notes they obtained, showing that on Christmas Eve, he was ready to step aside from his ceremonial role. Quote, not feeling like I should attend electoral count. Too many questions, too many doubts, too hurtful to my friend. Therefore, I'm not going to participate in certification of election. Apparently, it was only when his son, who is a Marine, told him across the dinner table that they both took the same oath to support and defend the Constitution, that Pence decided he would preside, even under the mounting pressure from Trump, according to sources familiar. 
ABC News added sources said that investigators questioning became so granular at times that they pressed Pence over the placement of a comma in his book. When recounting a phone call with Trump on Christmas Day 2020, Pence wrote in his book that he told Trump, you know, comma, I don't think I have the authority to change the outcome of the election on January 6th. But Pence allegedly told Smith's investigators that the comma should have never been placed there. According to sources, Pence told Smith's investigators that he actually meant to write in his book that he admonished Trump, saying, you know I don't have the authority to change the outcome, suggesting Trump was well aware of the limitations of Pence's authority days before January 6th. The line Smith includes in his indictment. The sources also said Pence told investigators in the days leading up to January 6th that he was sure that he told Trump he still hadn't seen evidence of significant election fraud. But Trump was unmoved, having surrounded himself with, quote, crank attorneys espousing un-American legal theories. Joining me now is Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney, professor at the University of Michigan School of Law and MSNBC legal analyst, and Matthew Dowd, political strategist and MSNBC senior political analyst. Thank you both for being here. Barb, uh, the question of a comma, a comma can, this this is why uh, I love language, because there's a big difference between, you know, I I don't have this authority, uh, you know, and you know, I don't have this authority, (laughs) you know? So what do you make of these sort of details which are emerging from what Pence has told Jack Smith's team? Yeah, it's like, you know, my dearest Angelica, is there a comma or not? It changes everything about the meaning, right? Um, Here, you know, is it a throwaway line of just, you know, I don't have authority or you know I don't have authority? I think that matters because it is an acknowledgement between Pence and Trump that Pence never had the authority to do what Donald Trump claimed that he did. And so I think it's a really important point. Um, and it's refreshing, I think, that Mike Pence is providing uh, helpful and sounds like truthful information that can be helpful to the prosecution in this case. I imagine that when this trial ultimately happens, Joy, we're going to hear details we have never heard before. And there are going to be things like this, things about private conversations that were had between Donald Trump and others that will be bone chilling. Yeah, and Pence will be a star witness. Let me play for you, uh, Matthew. Mike Pence, uh, he gets a lot of credit for saying things like this and even saying it to MAGA supporters. Take a listen. I swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. And it ended with a prayer. So help me God. My son, who's a captain in the United States Marine Corps, reminded me one time that it's the exact same oath that he took. There's almost no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could pick the American president. People deserve to know that on that day, the former president asked me to choose him over my oath to the Constitution. I chose the Constitution, and I always will. Except, Matthew, that we now know from Pence's own testimony to Jack Smith that he considered staying home and letting Chuck Grassley presumably do what he would not. Your thoughts? So I I find so much of this fascinating. First, uh, you know, I don't think Mike Pence, I'm glad he's telling the truth, but this, all of this is an indictment on both Donald Trump and what he was doing and Mike Pence and what he was not doing. 
not only was he not saying anything publicly, which we all know at the time, but also his deliberations sounded like he was ready to do what Donald Trump wanted. And then there's a there's a reported meeting between him and his son where his son says, what are you talking about, Dad? I took an oath. You took an oath. You better stick up for the Constitution. And then there's this other, which I find very weird line that Mike Pence says, but something like, but he's my friend. But yeah. we're friends. He's got some line where he says, well, friends, that to me sounds not like somebody that's in the middle of a constitutional crisis, but somebody that's in fourth grade w- wondering whether or not he should give Valentine's to the whole class. Right. Like, I, I don't know. Should I give Valentine's to Susie and Bill and, and <laughs> not like, oh, there's a major constitutional crisis. I'm worried about my friend Donald Trump in this. And so to me. I think Barb's right. We're going to learn a lot more. Every time we go through these things, we think we know everything when we learn more in this. I think Mike Pence's testimony is incredibly an indictment of Donald Trump, but it's actually also an indictment of Mike Pence. Yeah, it is a statement about the weakness of the Republican Party writ large, that they hem and haw. I mean, he had to go to a former vice president to ask, can I really do this? Or the, like, no, <laughs> you know, this is not considered one of the genius yeah, if, former vice presidents, like not a smarty. Go ahead. <laughs> if, if, if Dan Quayle is giving you fiber in your backbone, you got a problem. Yeah, you can't even spell potato. Um, let, let, let me because the question, I guess, for you, Barb, is whether Mike Pence's reluctance to follow the Constitution even though he ultimately did, his reluctance to do, it's just a ceremonial job, his reluctance to just do that and not turn it over to Chuck Grassley, who God knows what he would have done. Does that make him a better witness or a worse witness? And hold that thought while you think about that. Well, I want to play for you. Um, One of the things that I thought was the most compelling from the January 6th hearings, and it was the story of what happened when Mike Pence actually finally did make the decision, ultimately, that he would do his job, his ceremonial job. Here is uh, Greg Jacob. This was Pence's attorney describing that Pence was afraid to get into a car with Secret Service agents he didn't know. And I understood that the vice president had refused to get into uh, the car. Um, the, The head of his Secret Service detail, Tim, had said, I assure you, we're not going to drive out of the building without your permission. And the vice president had said something to the effect of, Tim, I know you, I trust you, but you're not the one behind the wheel. And the vice president did not want to take any chance that um, the world would see the vice president of the United States fleeing the United States Capitol. Barb, does his hemming and hawing, but ultimately doing what he was, you know, required by the Constitution to do, make him a better witness, or does it make him impeachable by the defense? I think it makes him a less likable witness for the jury. But as the government will often say with cooperators or associates of defendants, you don't have to like the witness to believe him. And so I think, you know, people have flaws. Cases have flaws. And I think what matters most is when someone is truthful. So I think admitting these flaws makes him believable and will uh, is just as incriminating as it would be otherwise. I want to ask you both about Mark Meadows, but I want to start with you, Barbara. Mark Meadows ain't getting a plea deal. <laughs> From the, we're moving now to the other January 6th case. This is in Fulton County. Uh, Fonnie Wills is like, no, no plea deal for you, no plea deal for Giuliani, clearly no plea deal for Trump. What do you make of that? Because Mark Meadows, you know, we've had lawyers on the show that have said if there was one person they would want to spill all the beans, even if they had to give him a deal, it would be Meadows. What do you make of the fact that he ain't getting one, at least not from Fonnie Willis? 
Yeah, it's really interesting, Joy. I think especially in, the, in light of the way he's been treated by the federal prosecutors, he is not really included in that indictment among the unindicted co-conspirators. I think his description was um, very significant in its absence, which caused me to believe at the time that he was cooperating in the federal case. And it's a very odd posture to cooperate in one forum and not the other, because uh, you're, you're really sort of working at cross purposes for yourself. Um, yeah. But I don't know, you know, it, it is a typical prosecutor's strategy to use the lower level offenders to go after the higher level offenders. And being the chief of staff to the president is a pretty high level offender. Yeah, I want to put up the, the calendar for next year, Matthew, which is going to be a dumpster fire for us all. <laughs> don't y'all don't, don't make any plans. Um, there it is, uh, Matthew. We've got everything all mixed together. Donald Trump is facing civil cases uh, for alleged uh, sexual assault. Um, you've got the Iowa caucuses. Uh, then that's mixed in with um, his federal cases. Super Tuesday. It's all mixed in the political calendar and his legal calendar. And, and this is coming at a time when everyone involved in these cases uh, against Trump are facing just extraordinary threats. The threat environment is high. Uh, Fonnie Willis has faced them. The, the poor clerk in this New York fraud case has faced just abominable, ending, unending threats um, while the gag orders are lifted. How, how bad is it going to get next year, in your view, uh, I think it's going to be rough, but Matthew, how bad do you think it's going to get? I mean, for you, me, and Barbara? <laughs> <laughs> Just for us. Make it about us. No, for the country. I mean, the thing is, I, you know, uh, no, it's no, hard I for get, me to imagine having all of these things happening at once, but how bad do you think it's going to get for the country? Awful. I mean, I, I don't think we've ever seen this kind of convergence between a former president running for office again in the midst of multiple trials that'll be held simultaneously while he wins primaries and caucuses. That's what's going to be the bizarre thing of this. And the people running against him, Nikki Haley and whatever, I think what's going to end up happening is he's going to have momentum. He'll win Iowa, he'll win New Hampshire, he'll win South Carolina, and he'll basically all but be the nominee. It, and basically be there. And then he's going to get convicted before he goes to the RNC convention in July. That, so he'll be the nominee, but be a convicted nominee in the midst of this. And then we'll be headed into a general election with the nominee of a major political party convicted at least in one court, if not in two different courts in this time, a convicted felon running for president under the Republican Party. I don't will. We have never not in my life have ever seen a calendar that will unfold in that manner. But it also is, it's going to be so weird while this is going on, vote, Republican voters voting for him to be the nominee of the party as he's convicted. It, it is, I mean, but it's not, it, it's not as if it hasn't ever happened, right? I mean, Israel has a current sitting prime minister who is indicted along with his wife for crimes and still got the job. And his behavior is sort of speaks to the desperation uh, of when you're, you know, when you are in a corner. And uh, look, fear for the future, but scaring is caring. What we say on the show, Barbara McQuaid, Matthew Dowd, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, the temporary truce in Gaza extends into day five as more hostages are released and the White House pushes to extend it even longer. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, 
which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Another breakthrough day in the fragile and fluid hostages for prisoners exchange between Israel and Hamas. Ten Israeli hostages and two Thai hostages returned to Israel territory, Israeli territory today. Here are some of them in photos that were released today. In exchange for this latest group, 30 Palestinian detainees will return home. We have reached day five of the extended pause between Israel and Hamas. CIA Director William Burns arrived in Qatar today to meet with Israeli to meet with Israel's spy chief and Qatar's prime minister. Per The Washington Post, the, quote, secret meetings are aimed at brokering an expansive deal between Israel and Hamas. The humanitarian situation remains catastrophic in Gaza, where health officials say the death toll has surpassed 14,500 after weeks of Israeli attacks. Israel has vowed to resume its assault on Hamas once the hostage releases end. Joining me now is Omer Bartov, professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University. Um, professor Bartov, I was very excited uh, when, I, when my producers told me, I asked if they could see if you'd come on the show, and they said you would. And so thank you for being here. Uh, I read your very brilliant piece, which I've printed out here and have marked up extensively so no one can even borrow it. I've marked it up. So I just want to go through a few of the things you said, and I'm going to post it on threads for those of you who follow me on the socials um, so people can read it. You said that when October 7 happened, as um, somebody who is from Israel yourself, uh, who fought in the 1973 war, you're a veteran um, of the Israeli military, you were shocked, uh, but you were not surprised. Why? Well, I, I was shocked. First of all, uh, thank you for having me on your show. It's, it's really a pleasure. Um, I was shocked because uh, it was so atrocious. I mean, the, the killings were so terrible and the extent of it was so extraordinary. Uh, but I was not surprised because, as, as I write there, if you keep people under siege for 16 years without any hope, with, uh, without proper sanitation, without proper education, with very heavy unemployment, a place that they cannot leave, uh, it becomes a pressure cooker and people will want to break out and people will be brutalized by that situation. And in a sense, Hamas, uh, which is a terrorist organization, was making use of that and uh, mobilizing that rage, that frustration. And so at some point, something had to break. And so I was not surprised that it happened, although it was shocking to see. Um, you, you've also disputed some of the sort of characterizations of what's happened. I mean, this has been called a pogrom. It, it obviously is the worst attack uh, on Israel since, um, you know, I think in its existence in terms of the numbers of dead since 1948. So it, it is obviously it's, it's being described as their 9-11. Um, but you have said that some of the characterizations are not accurate. Explain what you mean. 
Well, some people have called it a pogrom. Uh, and a pogrom is uh, something that happened, started happening really in the late 19th century, and these were attacks by mobs uh, on Jewish communities. And Jews uh, in southern Russia and Ukraine were living there as minorities, and the mobs were part of the majority population, sometimes assisted by the authorities. And so the police, uh, the army, was on the side of the mobs. Uh, and the whole idea of Zionism was to create a Jewish state, a Jewish majority state, where the police would be Jewish, the army would be Jewish, and uh, therefore pogroms wouldn't happen. So what happened on uh, October 7th was a terrorist attack, calling it a pogrom and um, sort of contextualizing in that way what means what it means is that this was an anti-Semitic attack. And therefore, what do you do with anti-Semites? If they attack you, then you have to attack them back. There's no talking with them. And that's part of how the Israeli government wants to frame this whole thing. That is to present it as something that these people just want to destroy us. We can't talk with them. We just have to either remove them or put them behind a fence. Uh, and so I think to call it a pogrom is a little bit like calling 9-11 a pogrom. It was a terrorist attack, not a pogrom. Uh, what do you make of the fact that they are talking to them now? I mean, uh, you know, Eden is the Israeli press. They've been very clear that Benjamin Netanyahu has seen Hamas as useful in some ways and that the worse they are, the worse they behave, the more he can point to them and say, see, that's why there'll never be a Palestinian state. Uh, he is again saying those kinds of things. There won't be a Palestinian state under his watch, that he can manage the American public opinion, etc. Um, he's also made it very clear that, that they want to continue this war and they would go back to bombing to eradicate Hamas. You've cast doubt on whether that can happen. Why? Whether it, Hamas can be eradicated. Well, look, I mean, it, I think Hamas is both a terrorist organization, a social movement, and the political and military hegemon in Gaza. It's an ideology. It's a belief. I do think that it could be removed as the hegemon from Gaza. I don't think that what propels it, what it feeds on, um, um, can be easily removed. In order to remove Hamas, in order to, to solve the situation, what you need is to change the political paradigm. What, what you need to say is that, uh, the state of Israel, uh, after the October 7th attack has understood that it can no longer manage the conflict, which is exactly what Netanyahu has been saying for 20 years. We will manage the conflict. Uh, and the conflict is not manageable. The conflict has to be solved. That was shown on October 7th in a horrific way, but that was shown. To change that paradigm, I think Hamas is not a good partner for negotiations. It would be very good to see Hamas gone. But the Israeli government is also not a good partner for negotiations because Netanyahu and the people to his right, who are very extreme, do not want any settlement. What they want is really, if they could, is to remove the population of Gaza from Gaza, to make them into refugees elsewhere, maybe taken for humanitarian reasons into other countries, and to gradually ethnically cleanse the West Bank and settle that too. Um, that will not happen. There are 7 million Palestinians living in areas controlled by Israel and 7 million Jews. It's 50-50. They have to learn to live together and they have to find a way of doing that. 
And the Netanyahu regime will never agree to that. And so in the long run, the way to stop this war is to change the entire political paradigm and look to a different future. Uh, we are we are out of time. I was obviously good to have you back. Okay, can you please come back? Because I want to talk to you for longer. Um, we are out of time. But yes, if you'll come back, we'll have part two of this conversation then. Omar Bartov, Professor Omer Bartov, thank you very much. Um, and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Coming up next, uh, with the world's attention focused on the Mideast, Russia ramps up its crackdown on domestic dissent with a criminal case targeting New York journalist Masha Gessen, who joins me next. With everything that's going on in the world, we should not turn a blind eye to the other major war Western news media were covering relentlessly overseas for a time, namely Russia's war in Ukraine. Just this weekend, Russia launched its largest drone attack on Ukraine since the war began, targeting the capital city of Kiev. Several buildings were damaged, including a kindergarten. Russia's crackdown on anyone who criticizes or questions the Kremlin is also ongoing. Today, the detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, Gershkovich was extended for a third time until at least January 30th. He's been in a Russian jail for nine months on charges of spying, which he, the journal and the State Department all deny. Russia has now also opened a criminal case against Russian-American journalist Masha Gessen, who is a writer for The New Yorker accusing them of spreading knowingly false information about atrocities committed by Russian soldiers in Ukraine. In a recent interview, Gessen discussed a reporting trip to several Ukrainian cities to document potential war crimes in the first months of the war, specifically the brutal killings of civilians in the Ukrainian city of Bukha on March, in March of 2022. And joining me now is Masha Gessen, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the book, surviving autocracy. Uh, and I like to say friend of the show as well. Uh, Masha, thank you for being here. I want to just go ahead and get your initial reaction when you heard the news that Russia had opened this prosecution against you. Well, I'm a, one of several hundred people who were persecuted in this way by the Russian state. And so my reaction is double-edged. On the one hand, it's a badge of honor. It's a sort of recognition of my work. On the other hand, it's um, it's disappointing, it's saddening, and it's maddening. Uh, and it will make work harder because there are a number of places in the world that I will no longer be able to go. Right. And that's what I wanted to get into next is sort of how this pragmatically impacts your journalism, because you have done some phenomenal reporting, being able to go to Ukraine and, t- and see the atrocities and, and write about them from a firsthand point of view as a journalist. You know, how limiting will this be in terms of your ability to do your job? Uh, well, first, I want to say that I'm one of 245 people who have so far been charged under this wartime law that bans the uh, bans knowingly spreading false information about the Russian armed forces. And a majority of those people who have been charged under this law are in Russia and have gone to prison for many years. This law uh, provides for punishment of up to 15 years behind bars, and most people are getting between six and nine years in prison. Uh, but I'm, I'm also one of several who are outside the country and obviously have no intention of going back into the country just to be arrested. 
Uh, I don't think I will have any issues with going to Ukraine, at least not because of this particular pro- uh, uh, search warrant that's coming out uh, to, to get me. Um, but the problem is that there, uh, for people who uh, are arrested in absentia, as I'm about to be, and then later sentenced in absentia, which I will surely all, uh, also be, uh, the problem is you always have to keep track of which countries have extradition treaties with Russia. Uh, so, for example, one conflict that I have covered and that I would have liked to continue covering is the war between Azerbaijan and Armenia, a hugely undercovered but hugely important conflict in, in that part of the world. I don't think I'll be able to go back to either of those countries, uh, certainly for the foreseeable future. Uh, and then there are places, weird places like Indonesia, which has a new extradition treaty with Russia. And on and on, many countries of the global south will probably now be closed to me. Right. And that is one of the things that you know, we did a, a piece last week about sort of the way the global south is sort of turning away from the West and in some cases toward China and toward Russia. Um, it, it, what do you make of the fact that they are being so aggressive about trying to tamp down stories like the ones that we're reading about soldiers, uh, Russian soldiers, their texts indicating they want out, that they're disillusioned with the war, that they don't believe in the cause, that, you know, they're questioning why they're there. Obviously, that is concerning to the Kremlin because the, the truth doesn't help them. Right. Um, but is it an indication for you of their weakness? Vladimir Karamurza, another friend of the show, also jailed, um, I, I presume, under a sa- the same law or something similar. Is this a statement of weakness in your view, uh, in the Kremlin's point of view, or in the Kremlin's position? Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Vladimir Karamurza. He's actually jailed, I think he has a 20-year sentence yes. for uh, high treason. And he is in extremely poor health, having been poisoned by Russia twice. So uh, I think we're all very concerned for him. He's a dual British-Russian national, but that has not, unfortunately, kept him safe. He was arrested in Russia. Um, I don't see this as a sign of weakness. I don't think that the terror machine is particularly smart. I don't think it listens to what, um, what, the, what, what, what the heart or the, or the mind of the country is telling it. It's not reacting uh, to, to the state of the country. Once it's started, it just keeps rolling and it keeps rolling over more and more people. That's the only way that political terror can work. That said, obviously, um, Russian authorities are terrified of any kind of protest. I think disproportionately terrified, uh, which unfortunately helps the, reg- the, the, the keep the regime stable because it overestimates any risk that comes at it from the inside. Right. And there have been, you know, there were protests in the early days of the Ukraine invasion. You saw Russians in the streets getting arrested for protesting against the war. You know, has that been sustained? And are you surprised at how durable the conflict has been mm-hmm. in Ukraine, given the fact that it is clear they cannot conquer that country? Well, um, there have been 20,000 arrests or almost 20,000 arrests for protesting the war in Ukraine. So this doesn't include the people whom I've mentioned who are imprisoned for high treason or for spreading supposedly false information. But just protest is about 20,000 people. And I'm amazed that there are 20,000 people in Russia who risk arrest, who risk years and years in jail, as, for example, the artist Sasha Skochilenka just was sentenced to seven years in prison 
for uh, this very artistic and very tiny protest. She changed out five little price tags in a food shop to uh, for tiny little informational flyers about the war in Ukraine. So first of all, I'm, I'm even though obviously it's not enough to sp stop the war, but I'm so impressed and so in awe of the people who keep protesting it. Now, yeah, Vladimir Karamurza says that. Go on. Yeah. But unfortunately, I'm not surprised uh, that Russia has been able to maintain the war in Ukraine, in part because Putin has no way to turn back, uh, but in part because he doesn't need to, because the value of human life in that country is nothing, because he can turn the entire population into cannon fodder if he wants to. And unfortunately, I don't think that there are any conditions under which he could meet resistance in turning people into cannon fodder. Uh, it is a, a terrifying reality. And as you said, the bravery of the Russian people who have tried to stand up to it is uh, it is remarkable. Uh, Masha Gessen, your bravery is remarkable as well. We value you so much in your voice. Please stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. And coming up, the Texas Supreme Court hears arguments in a lawsuit challenging the state's draconian abortion ban. Amanda Zaroski, the lead plaintiff in that case, joins me next. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. The Texas Supreme Court heard arguments today on whether the state's abortion bans hurt women with complicated pregnancies. It's part of an ongoing lawsuit filed by a group of Texas women who say they were denied abortions despite grave risks to their own lives or to their fetuses. A lawyer for the Center for Reproductive Rights, which filed the suit on behalf of the women and two doctors, said the bans have left doctors confused about what care they can provide. The abortion bans as they exist today subject physicians like my clients to the most extreme penalties imaginable, life in prison and loss of their medical license. And while there is technically a medical exception to the bans, no one knows what it means and the state won't tell us. In August, a lower court judge temporarily exempted women with medically complicated pregnancies from the state's abortion bans. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton immediately appealed that decision. Today, a prosecutor for the state argued that 20 women and two doctors suing the state lacked the ability to seek clarity, since it would only apply to hypothetical scenarios. But the attorney for the women said the women suing said the effects of te the Texas ban are already quite clear, citing the situation faced by the lead plaintiff, Amanda Zaroski. We are not talking about hypothetical harms. These are real patients, many of whom are sitting in the courtroom today. 
And, and for example, Mr. Roski became septic while waiting to be sick enough to receive abortion care. And she had multiple surgeries to reconstruct her uterus three days in the ICU. And now her fertility is compromised. Joining me now is Amanda Zorowski, lead plaintiff for the Texas abortion ban lawsuit. Uh, good to see you, Amanda. The last time I saw you, there were five plaintiffs. Now there are 20 plus two doctors. Um, that is not surprising. Uh, I think that was the expected outcome, that more women would be harmed. But I want to let you listen to one of the arguments that was made, which to me seems pretty astounding. Uh, an attempt to deny that you and your 19 uh, co-plaintiffs have standing to bring this suit. Take a listen. Your position is that in order to challenge, to seek the kind of clarity that these plaintiffs are seeking, you have to have a woman who has some, who is pregnant, who has some health condition that she believes places her life at risk or impairment to a major bodily function. But her doctor says, I don't think it does. And she has to then sue the doctor and maybe the attorney general at that point, and then she would have standing. I don't know if that would be the only circumstance, but you would at least then know that the law is the problem and not the doctor refusing to perform an abortion. Amanda, the judge seemed a bit confused by it, as am I. Your thoughts on that argument? Everyone was confused by this, right? Um, the, The claim in and of itself, the audacity to say essentially that a pregnant patient would have to be in some sort of dire situation in the middle of this situation um, to to have standing is just absurd. In my particular situation, what that would have meant is while my amniotic fluid was running down my leg, that's when I would have been able to pursue legal action. But in my case, I went septic hours later. So I would have died in court trying to fight. And that's what the state is saying I should have done. It doesn't make any sense. And it sounds like they're saying that, as you said, if you were in that catastrophic situation, which you could die from, you'd have to take the time to first sue your doctor. And then only after that, you could sue over the law. That seems nonsensical. And it also sounds like the state of Texas is saying that women need to come near to death before they can get relief. That's exactly what it sounds like they're saying. And it sounds to me like they would want me to essentially die trying before they'll admit that I was harmed. Can you sort of sort through, and we're not trying to get you to be a, psych, a psychiatrist here for the, the people, who, the men who run your state, and I guess the woman who was part of the prosecution there, but it sounds as if the state of Texas is saying you must attempt to give birth or die, and that women don't have any other choice but that. No matter what the circumstance, you give birth or die, and that they really don't want to allow any other option. Am I over-reading that? I can't begin to get into the minds of the lawmakers in my state, and I certainly wouldn't want to, but I don't think you're overreaching. Um, you know, we have we have plaintiffs on the case who had non-viable pregnancies or who had um, babies who were not going to survive, and they still said that that's something that should have happened and they should have to carry to term 
regardless of the outcome or the eventual outcome of that child's life. Have you seen in the state of Texas any sort of genuine political backlash? One of the things that has surprised me is the lack of political backlash in states like Texas, states like Georgia, where they have these six-week abortion bans, or states like Missouri, where they have total abortion bans. Whereas in states that are proposing them or proposing the opportunity to protect abortion rights, there is this huge outgrowth of women from all political parties rushing out to say, no, no, I want to protect myself. But, But the backlash piece in states that have already done it, do you see it in the state of Texas? I think we are seeing it. I just think it's a long game. It's a hard battle to win. It's going to take a long time. And I think we know that. Um, But I think we see it happening. I think the midterm elections last year, we saw some of those margins shrink um, and we're just going to have to keep chipping away. We know this isn't something that we're going to be able to change overnight. Um, The overturning of Roe was a 50 year war and hopefully this one won't be quite so Uh long, but we know that it's going to take some time. Yeah, it is a cautionary tale that we we mustn't give up our hard won rights uh, easily simply by electing the wrong United States senators and presidents, uh, because it can take, as you said, decades to get them back. Um, your fellow plaintiffs, um, how are they doing? How are people's spirits uh, in terms of this lawsuit? It's a good question. I think we're all over the board in terms of, you know, where we are personally. I think as far as the lawsuit specifically, we're very encouraged. I think we're optimistic. I think we're very hopeful. No matter what happens with our lawsuit, I think it's a win-win situation because if the state of Texas does not side with us, if the Supreme Court um, doesn't agree with us, I think all that's going to do is create an enormous amount of outrage, which is just fuel for the fire. And it's more motivation to keep fighting. Um, if they do side with us, obviously a win's a win. And that's great. So I think, I think we're very optimistic and we're seeing action similar to what's going on in Texas being taken in other states. And that's so encouraging. And that's what it's going to take. We all have to fight on, on all fronts. Women of America, control of your state legislature, control of the governorship and deciding who is in the United States Senate. It literally could be a matter of life and death and autonomy for you. Vote smart. Amanda Zorowski, uh, you're very brave and uh, I'm glad that you are in this fight. Thank you. It is good to see you and wishing you the best of luck in your lawsuit. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cheers. And coming up. President Biden, former presidents and first ladies gather in Atlanta to pay their respects to former first lady Rosalind Carter. More next. Today, the life of first lady Rosalind Carter was honored at a beautiful memorial service in Atlanta. Former President Jimmy Carter, who is 99 years old and who has been in hospice for months, attended as well as all the living First Ladies and Presidents Biden and Clinton. Mrs. Carter was remembered for her love of family and her tireless dedication to public service. My mother, Rosalind Carter, was the most beautiful woman I've ever met and pretty to look at, too. She did so much, worked so hard throughout her entire life at the White House and in the many years before and since, championing the rights of the underserved, coming to the aid of the most vulnerable, doing whatever she could to improve the lives of others. 
Without Rosalind Carter, I don't believe there would have been a President Carter. As Reverend Warnock told me, uh, my grandmother doesn't need a eulogy. Her life was a sermon. Since her father wasn't able to speak, daughter Amy Carter read from a love letter he sent Rosalind 75 years ago while serving in the Navy. My darling, every time I have ever been away from you, I have been thrilled when I returned to discover just how wonderful you are. While I am away, I try to convince myself that you really are not, could not be, as sweet and beautiful as I remember. But when I see you, I fall in love with you all over again. Does that seem strange to you? It doesn't to me. Goodbye, darling. Until tomorrow. Jimmy. A love story for the ages. Rosalind Carter was 96 years old. She'll be buried tomorrow in Plains, Georgia. And that's tonight's readout. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.